back to another episode of Associated. I am here today with my lovely co-host, Lois. How are you? Hello. Good, thank you. How are you? This is the second one in a row that we are doing together, where we get to chat to cool and interesting people. That's been very nice. I know. It is nice, isn't it? We should do this more often. (laughs) I know. Have more Lois and Petra time. And for our listeners, do not worry. Francesca will be hosting again very, very soon while she's currently taking a little bit of a holiday. We miss you, Francesca. And Lois, do you want to introduce our guest? Who are we speaking to today? Yes, I very much do. I am very excited to say that we're going to be joined today by Shanaz Navaz, who is an associate at Emerge Education. How are you doing, Shanaz? I'm very well, thank you. Great to be here. No, thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest. It's really good to have you. Yeah, no problem at all. Looking forward to it. Great. So you have actually been at Emerge Education for not so long, just after a year. And it's a pretty interesting time to join a new company, let alone joining a VC fund and a VC fund that's investing in such a sector like education. How have the past few months been for you? Yeah, it's definitely been an interesting period over the past few months, to say the least. And in terms of our work at Emerge, just to give you a quick bit of background, our mission is to invest in the entrepreneurs who are solving the global skills gap. As a fund, we're the only one out there that's backed by some of the world's foremost educational entrepreneurs. So given that our thesis is focused entirely on helping individuals develop skills and gain meaningful employment outcomes, it's been a period of change that, of course, goes way beyond anything that anyone ever expected. For example, at the, at the peak of the crisis, there were over a billion learners quarantined around the world. And as a result... This kicked off what we call it Emerge, an accelerated innovation cycle for education. Uh, by that, I mean that there has been a massive rise in the adoption of startup and technology solutions. And both universities and employers have really been forced to rely on digital solutions to deliver education and training. And what this has meant for both ourselves and our portfolio companies is that although it's been a really challenging period because of the volume of change, it's also been a significant period of growth at the same time as well. So despite all the problems that have been created by the pandemic, we're really thinking about how we can use this as an opportunity to shift the paradigm in education and move to a world where hopefully learning is much more scalable, flexible, and much better aligned to the needs of industry. So I'd say that's a very quick summary of the past few months and where we are today. That's cool. I love that, especially in the context of society at the moment. There were just two things I wanted to pick up on, Shinaz, that you said near Mm. the beginning when you're explaining about Emerge. I'm not particularly close to the education sector, so Mm. I was interested, who are the foremost education entrepreneurs and how did you get into the space? What's kind of your background before this? Yeah, those are two separate points. I'll, I'll try and focus on the first one to begin with. In terms of the foremost educational entrepreneurs, We really try to work with and get on board those individuals who've built education businesses that are worth either hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. Uh, Investors in our fund include Dan Summer. He was the co-founder of Trilogy Education Services. And they are a boot camp provider that helps individuals develop technology skills. And in 2015, when they were founded, they managed to grow 
and exit in 2019 at a valuation of $750 million. So that's a, an example of a, of a foremost educational entrepreneur. And just another one I'll mention is Rob Cohen, who is the co-founding CFO of 2U. They are an online program manager. And he, as, as one of the co-founders, took it from an idea to IPO, where they eventually reached a valuation of $2 billion. So those are the kinds of individuals that we describe as the foremost entrepreneurs in education. And those are very much individuals that we have on board as investors in our fund as well. In terms of your second point on how did I get into this, it's actually quite a long story in terms of getting into VC and, and specifically education VC. But the, the very short version is that I decided to join Emerge Education because I believe it gives me the best opportunity to have a meaningful impact on the world of education and work. Okay, I'm sure we'll get into a bit more in sort of how did you get into VC, how did you get your role in a little bit, but I'm just specifically interested, how did you choose the education space? Did you have experience in that prior to the role at Emerge? Exactly, and, and for me, my interest in education actually stems back uh, ever a long way, starting from my own schooling experiences. And I don't know how, how you found school, but from my perspective, I would often be bored out of my mind in class. I would often struggle to keep up with the teachers. And for me, I could never really see why anything I learned in school was actually useful in the real world. To give you a direct quote from one of my high school teachers, I was told that I do a very good impression of a kid in a coma, which is uh, grossly inappropriate, but also sadly accurate at times of my experience in class. If we then fast forward to university, I eventually graduated with an economics degree, but the issues that I had with education never changed in terms of the problems that, that I saw with it. And at that point, I asked myself, what can I do to try and improve things? I, I initially began by co-founding a mobile education startup. There's a story there, but that was my initial foray into edtech. It, it wasn't a particularly successful one, but I learned a lot. I then went on to work at Deloitte in their education consulting practice, where I worked with a bunch of different universities, government agencies, and also schools. And that's when I eventually moved on to Emerge. So I would say, yes, I did have a, a bit of education experience. And that really helped to get me prepared for the current role at Emerge. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's great when you have a personal drive and a personal relationship to like a specific sector or topic. I think that that gives you a little bit of like an extra flame of companies or relating to founders or relating to potential customers. I think it's fantastic to have the personal interest behind the sector that you're investing in and really forming the steps that you took in your career around the center of gravity. And how did those steps come about? How were you positioning VC in the context of making those job decisions, like doing the startup, then moving into established institution? Or was it happenstance that Emerge Education came about? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I'd say in terms of my, my ultimate decision to join Emerge and focus on VC, I would say that was a, a very intentional and conscious decision based on my experiences. And to, to start with, um, if we go back to the, the startup, how that began is that during my time at university, I spent a lot of time with different societies. I had some leadership positions. Uh, and one of my key frustrations was in trying to make the most out of those societies, trying to get people to come along. And even as an individual, I found it very hard to pick the right groups or societies that I want to get involved with and therefore make the most out of my university experience. 
So the idea behind the startup, you can think of it as a Tinder for university events. I promise you there's more to it, but the idea is you have some filter preferences, you pick the kind of societies you like or the events you want to go to, and then everything relevant on campus comes up like a stack of cards on your mobile app. And for me, um, because I was very inexperienced at the time, learned a huge deal through this experience. And we, we raised a bit of angel funding. But in the end, my co-founders, i.e. my friends and I, weren't quite in a place to really take it further. So we took the learnings and decided to go down the more safer and stable corporate route, at least to begin with, in terms of our careers. And that's what took me to Deloitte. And at Deloitte, I learned from working with the, the universities, the other big organizations, that although they, they all absolutely have their value and they do a great job themselves in their own right, change in these organizations is extremely hard and often very, very slow. So on one hand, I had these big organizations moving relatively slowly, and I could see in the world of venture capital, you would have individual companies going from literally scratch to impacting millions of individuals in the space of a few years. And that's really what sparked my interest in VC. I thought, yes, on one hand, I could work with these incumbent organizations and, and do some work there and have an impact. But given that I'm quite impatient and I, I really wanted to learn quickly and have an impact uh, in the greatest way I could, I really do believe VC is the best way to do that. And that's why I ended up picking and, and joining Emerge. Fantastic. That's a really helpful summary. Going back a little bit to your startup, having tried something and then coming up to challenges like many, many do, what do you feel has contributed to your role as a VC now, having started your own business? How do you feel it, it benefits you as an investor now? Yeah, absolutely. I think someone else mentioned this in a, in a previous podcast. In terms of having that entrepreneurship experience, you really are in a better position to empathize with the founder and understand what it is that they're going through. And also when it comes to fundraising, that's just one very small part of a founder's job. They have a million other things to do. And I think that gives me a greater level of respect and empathy to deal with the founders when they come to me for fundraising. And as a result, I can build a closer relationship, have more common points of reference. For me, that just, at the end of the day, makes building those relationships easier and therefore my job more easier to do as a result. Yeah, sure. I can totally see that. And Shunaz, obviously, kind of getting to know founders and supporting them and being empathetic it is ingrained in the day job. What are some of the main things that you are responsible for at Emerge? Yeah, absolutely. So the main thing I do at Emerge as an associate is focused on deal flow. That's everything from filtering the deals that we get inbound to scanning the market, reaching out to new founders, and also building out our community to generate more founders that we want to speak with as well. The other thing I do and, and spend a lot of time on is market research to build out our investment thesis, really nail down the categories that we want to invest in. And the last and final thing I do is really expand our network in terms of the university leaders we work with, the employers as well, because that really makes a difference in supporting our portfolio companies. Okay, great. So it sounds like the kind of market research that you can do then allows you to have a kind of greater insight into the education space and perhaps support the founders in your portfolio from like mm. a strategic and an operational perspective probably as well. And I guess that's part of the value add of Emerge. Is that right? Yeah, that's very well put. And I would say that the market research we do definitely makes a difference in the value that we add for our founders. This is something that we spend a lot of time thinking about at Emerge because we really want to bring a unique perspective and provide value in a way that goes beyond what's already out there. 
This is particularly important now, given the rapid rise in the number of micro VCs over the past decade. And by micro VC, I mean funds with less than 100 million pounds in assets under management. And the data shows that over the past decade, we've gone from there being less than 100 VCs in the US and Europe to now there being over a thousand of these micro VCs. Even in this climate with so many VCs, I'm pleased to say that many of the founders in our fund really highlight the value that we add in terms of unique insight. And often they refer to us as extended members of their team. There are quite a few reasons behind this, but one of the main ones is that we pitch in and provide detailed, tactical and sector-specific advice. I'd say that we're able to do this mainly thanks to the depth of our market research and also the, the strength of the entrepreneurs, the universities and the employers in our network as well. So overall, yes, as you've pointed out, I would say that market research definitely has been important in adding value for our founders. Yeah, I think that's a really salient point, actually, about the kind of rise of micro VCs and the need to stand out. How does that impact a fund like yours that's kind of sector specific as opposed to more generalist funds, do you think? That's a really interesting question. And as a sector specific fund... I would say that there are three or four main ways in which we differentiate ourselves. First, I would say that our biggest differentiating factor is what I mentioned already, that we are the only fund that's backed by the world's foremost educational entrepreneurs. This makes a massive difference for our portfolio companies because we make sure that every single one of them is advised by at least one of these top-tier entrepreneurs. As a result, our founders are able to get first-hand insights from the entrepreneurs who have navigated the very same sector-specific challenges that they're facing today um, and actually go on to build some of the biggest businesses in education. The, the second differentiator I'll mention is the strength of our network. We are the best connected VC in higher education, at least in Europe, and we have strong relationships with the senior leadership teams of more than half of the universities in the UK. We also have a strong and rapidly growing network of highly innovative employers. This really helps us to provide our founders with deep customer insight and also enable them to gain direct customer connections to some of the early adopters for their solution. The, the third thing I'd mention um, in terms of differentiators is the tactical insights that we provide for our founders. Uh, I touched on this briefly before um, and as mentioned, the founders in our fund often see us as an extension of their team, and we try to provide very practical and specific advice on how to reach product market fit in their specific niche. Um, so, so those are the three big differentiators. Just one, one other one I'll, I'll quickly add is our track record as well. Over the past five years, we've been the most active investor in Europe in the space. And in that time, we've built a portfolio of 57 different startups that have since raised over £120 million in VC funding. Uh, that includes money raised from top-tier funds, such as Stride, Local Globe, and Project A as well. So to, to just quickly go back to your original question, I believe that our sector focus has really helped to build some of these key differentiators. And whereas a generalist fund will have perhaps a broader range of strengths, they won't necessarily have the same depth when it comes to sector insight and network and so on. Mm. And when you were just talking about the expertise from LPs as something that differentiates the fund, I was thinking, that's great. But as someone who's relatively early on still in their VC career, how mm. do you personally think about the contribution that you can make to differentiate in the fund? 
Yeah, absolutely. For me, where I add value is in the other two areas that I mentioned. So one is around sector insight. To give you one concrete example, I spent a lot of time initially at Emerge talking to university leaders. And I produced a report based on over 50 conversations with these universities. And that was focused very much on one of their most pressing needs. But where do they really see technology having an impact in solving their problems? And that data isn't very useful for our portfolio companies because I can help them to shape their product, their value proposition, how they approach customers. And that guidance and that coaching for our portfolio is a direct area where I can add value. The second one is around direct connections to those universities, um, or in the case of our corporate training startups, to employers. Again, through my work, I build relationships with those universities and those employers, and I can definitely facilitate introductions between our portfolio and those individuals, which again helps for a lot of the founders as well. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that because I think we do often hear about differentiation in VC and sometimes it feels sort of difficult to affect Mm. that kind of change as a more junior member of a fund. So I think it is important to call out that there are contributions that you can make through things like, as you say, network and introductions, hard work, insight, research, even something as simple as kind of personal manner is something that can help. You mentioned being quick about due diligence or getting responses back to people. There are so many things that that you can do, aren't there? Exactly. I think it's, you're right, it's something that's often overlooked. But again, if you really think about it, those are definitely things that you can do, even if you are a junior in a VC fund. I actually had a question around sectors. So, Shanaz, within education, and you touched on this on what you just said, there's obviously so many different subsectors within that. And I think a lot of times when people hear about education, they think K through 12. But there's obviously so many different layers within that. There's upskilling and education beyond university. What are you currently excited about within those spaces that might actually exist outside of that K through 12 bucket? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, that's a very good point. When it comes to education, people do often think of K-12 and everything in the school space. But interestingly, our thesis is very much outside of K-12. We invest almost exclusively in companies in the post-secondary education space. And the way we look at it is that we split these companies broadly into two types. The first category is what we call enablers. These are essentially the companies that are helping educators, such as universities, to deliver much better learning experiences for individuals. And uh, the way I look at this is to describe them as the kind of companies that I wish existed when I was at university or, or when I was going through learning and development. The other category of company is then what we call disruptors. And as you can imagine, these are the companies that very much independently deliver education and training themselves. And we can break this down into a number of subcategories. One of them is what we call challenger universities. These are completely brand new organizations that award degrees, and they do it in a fundamentally different way to to what we already see in terms of the existing Russell Group and and other post-92 universities. So those are the the two broad categories that we invest in. And if I was to summarize that in, in one line, we look at the companies that are changing education in a way that makes it scalable, flexible, and industry aligned. That's the, the overarching theme that we look for in the companies that we invest in. Okay, got it. That sounds super exciting. And how do you think these sectors have changed over the past three months? Yeah, very good question. And if we segment it almost into, into higher education first and then corporate training, 
I think higher education has seen immense changes, as I'm sure everyone has seen or heard of in the news. And to give you one anecdote, we've had some universities in our network tell us the fact that they've seen more change in a period of five weeks than they have in a period of five years, to paraphrase. And a lot of that change, as you can imagine, is very much technology-enabled. So as a result, there has been a huge increase in demand for the edtech companies in this space. Um, to give you one example, we have a portfolio company called Aula, which is a learning experience platform. And previously, they would have relatively smaller engagements with universities over a few modules. But following the impact of the pandemic, they've now scaled to have contracts worth several million and actually roll out across multiple campuses and tens of thousands of individuals rather than hundreds of individuals. So that's, that's one clear impact we've seen in the higher education space. And when it comes to corporate training, again, very much a similar trend in terms of a much higher level of adoption of technologies. But one challenge here is that a, a lot of these large employers are becoming increasingly cash-strapped, uh, particularly in, in specific areas such as hospitality and aviation. Uh, and here, the, the companies that are most successful are the ones that can deliver scalable, personalized training in a way that's very cost-effective. For example, by taking content that already exists online and curating it in a way that it still delivers a high level of impact for individuals, but it's not too bespoke and it's not too expensive to develop from scratch. So I'd say those are some of the key trends that we've seen in the past three months. Sinas, when you're looking at earlier stage companies, how do you start to predict the impact that it will have on the end user? Yeah, that's a very good question. And given the fact that we do focus mainly on B2B companies, the end user is something that at times can be overlooked, but for us, it is very fundamental. And from speaking to some of the tier one operators in our fund, such as Dan Summer, who, who co-founded Trilogy, that focus on the end user is, is absolutely fundamental. And it's something that we look for right from the start of the due diligence process. And the, the very simplest way to do that is through customer testimonials, as you can imagine. But the other thing we do is understand what level of validation do they go through, not just with their enterprise clients in terms of employers and universities, but also with the actual individuals who go through these learning experiences. We care a lot about individual surveys and one-to-one interactions and how they monitor and collect data to understand how the end user is viewing the product as opposed to just seeing how the, the actual overarching organization use the product. So that's something that we definitely do look for in our evaluation. That is very good information. Thanks. No worries at all. So, Shanaz, we often ask for our listeners who are looking to get into the industry, whether your fund is hiring. I don't suppose you're doing any recruitment at the moment. Yeah, uh, I have to say that at this point in time, you're not hiring. So, unfortunately, not is the answer. No problem. That's fine. We've got a trusty follow-up question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We actually usually ask our guests about their kind of personal tips, but we've had Mm. a question from a listener that kind of does the job for us this week. So if it's all right with you, we're going to pop into question time. And we've got a question from Jan from our email inbox. And Jan listened to our episode with Jacob a couple of weeks ago, where I think Jacob talked a lot about how it was important to be really well prepared for interviews. He mentioned that before his interview at Partech, he kind of memorized the whole portfolio <laughs> and knew so much about all of the companies that he was ready for any question. And the advice he gave was to prepare well and stay close to the startup ecosystem. And the question we got in our inbox was, 
what would you recommend to someone who isn't actually in VC right now, but wants to stay in that loop? Do you have any particular tips or resources or places that people should be looking? Yeah, that's a really good question. And for me, I definitely agree with Jacob's point on preparation. That's absolutely fundamental. And for me, in terms of my own personal experience, what I found even handy was the step before preparing for an interview. And in terms of how I got into Emerge, I would say that was actually a very long process of searching the market and getting to know the funds in this space because I always knew I wanted to focus on education and, and really just building my knowledge and networks within the space before eventually an interview even came up. And I was fortunate that when Emerge was hiring, they reached out to me and said, hey, we're hiring you already. We think you're the kind of candidate who might be a fit. Um, so I think it helps to proactively reach out to people, build those relationships. And that's something that I found really useful in terms of my own experience. And being more specific in terms of how do you actually do that and how do you prepare for these interviews or even in terms of building these relationships in the first place. One thing that I personally found really handy was building your own personal brand or at least making yourself stand out in terms of your online presence. And to give you a specific example, I spent a lot of time researching and publishing articles on LinkedIn around the topic of education and future of work. And although it took me a lot of time to do this, in the end, it actually had a very big impact. And I managed to share those around. I used that as a talking point in my conversations with VCs and, and even in interviews. And it was actually one of the reasons that emerged in the end saw me as differentiated to some of the other candidates as well. So I'd say that's one thing which definitely helped. One other thing I'll mention as well is, is the importance of network. I'm sure everyone talks about the fact that you, you need to build relationships in VC and that's fundamental. But another thing that I did, which is helpful, was to think about who is the target market for the VC, whether it's founders or universities or whoever. And I tried to build my network within that space. For example, I interviewed EdTech founders when posting articles on LinkedIn, and I built relationships with universities through my time at Deloitte. And then when it came to the interview, the, the network I had in terms of founders and universities was another helpful differentiator, um, and it put me in good stead for the application to emerge as well. So those are the two things that I would mention. It's such an interesting point, isn't it, that you have to be able to differentiate yourself at these stages of kind of recruitment, but everyone gets the same advice to look at things in the startup ecosystem and to prepare really well. It just makes me think that actually the true differentiation comes from someone's own kind of personality in a way and them being able to put their own spin on things and really mm. convey their passion and like with you in education, for example, something that you can't really fake, I think. I think you're right. I think there are so many people applying for VC. It is very hard to stand out in most ways. Uh, but I think if, you, if you're really authentic and have a specific interest, that makes a difference. And I guess taking a step back from all this, one thing I would very highly recommend is to really clearly define which kinds of VCs you want to target and why. And because they really do come in all shapes and sizes. And if you focus on that first and then differentiating differentiation second, I think that really puts you in a, in a much better position. And just before in one of your other tips, as you talked about reaching out to people and cultivating a network, even prior to getting into VC, how mm. did you personally go about doing that? I know that you were kind of working in the sector already. Did you have any particularly favoured methods? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, given the focus that I had, I spent a lot of time talking to startups and naturally you can always always trace those startups back to VCs to see which fund is backing these individuals. And again, it doesn't have to be an edtech fund. It could be a generalist fund that's supporting the company that you're interested in. And the other thing I did as well is 
again, just focusing on my immediate network, whether it's individuals at my current company or individuals that I work with in terms of my clients while working at Deloitte. I think referrals from people who've heard of VCs makes a huge difference as well. And I was fortunate that because I went away, I built some relationships with founders. They were able to then connect me with VCs, um, which I found was quite a good route into building new relationships. Yeah, amazing. I think that's a really good tip. And if any of our listeners wanted to get in touch with you, whether they're in the ed tech space and looking for funding, perhaps, or otherwise, where can they find you? Yeah, in terms of individuals reaching out who are interested in the space, very happy to be contacted over email. It's shinas.navaz at emerge.education. And beyond that, I'm, I'm also on LinkedIn. Happy for people to contact me through there as well. Fantastic. I'm sure that you will be bombarded now. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Shinaz. I really enjoyed this conversation. I did not know nearly enough about EdTech. <laughs> no problem at all. It was a pleasure being here. Well, thanks, everyone. Thanks to everyone who tuned in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did and learned as much as we did. As always, you can reach us at associatedpodcast at gmail.com and follow us at associate underscore P-O-D pod on Twitter. And we always love and enjoy hearing from you. Thanks so much and speak to you next time. Bye.